necessary. So we're glad you're here this morning. Let me offer a word of prayer and we'll start our Sunday school class this morning. We're going to be talking about the early church, early church history, the first three centuries. So let me pray for us and we'll start together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can look to the past. We thank you that we have a history that we've come from. And help us to think about this deeply. Help us to understand your working in history, your sovereignty in history, your omnipresence, your omnipotence. Uh, in every detail, you have worked it out. And help us to give you the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start out this morning by just giving you a few resources and a couple of the resources uh, that just might be helpful, you know, sometimes, of course, we study our Bibles, but when we're looking at church history, where do you go? And so I'm just going to give you a couple basics, just a couple brief uh, uh, resources here. One, and I discovered uh, Dr. Nicholas Needham. You can find him on Legionnaire Ministries. You can find him on Monergism. You can find him in uh, Christianity.org. Uh, um, Dr. Nicholas Needham, you can Google his name and you can find I found him to be extremely helpful. Uh, I listened to a lot of his lectures and uh, much of what we're talking about today I've gleaned from him. As well as another resource, uh, monergism.com, some of you are already familiar with it, but it is a great site and you can just uh, put in their search site, Church History, and it's endless. I mean there are hundreds of articles that you can pull from. So Christian History Magazine, it was interesting in the early 90s, my wife, uh, she was bent on getting all the history magazines that she could and we took a prescription for about three or four years. Who would have known in 2021 that we could go on the website and actually pull those editions right off for free? And when we had no money back then, of course we bought them. But Christian History Magazine was a resource that I gleaned from. So those are just a few resources that you can think about um, and, uh, and so, uh, christianhistoryinstitute.org was one last one. Okay, so there we go with a few resources. So this morning we want to look at five significant or monumental events. I'm calling them events that impacted the first three centuries of the early church. Now when you're looking at me, understand that I have about 40 or 45 minutes, and this is going to be discussional oriented to cover three centuries. So I'm good with that. Um, we'll just move along and go as far as we can. But please keep in mind, this is discussional. Uh, interaction is good. And so please feel free if you have comments or some type of interactive thoughts, that would be great. I want to use a quote from Dr. Needham. And he asks this really important question. He says this, do you, do you owe anything to your parents? Do though, do you owe anything to your parents? Do they owe anything to theirs? This question may seem foolish, but it does have an act of conscience. Many Christians today seem to think that they owe nothing to the past, nothing to the historic church. They think Christianity is merely my Bible and my personal relationship with Jesus. This might be a slight exaggeration, but only slight, he says. When the when this outlook masters the mind, 
We often think we owe nothing to the past and we ignore those stuffy old cobwebs of history and only focus on what God's doing today. And then he concludes with two questions. A nation or two comments, two quotes. He says, a nation without a history is like a man without a memory. I mean, think about that. Isn't that a good quote? A nation without a history is like a man without a memory. Now, keep in mind this morning, we're not talking about being involved with America. We are God's people, part of his kingdom. We are part of his nation. This is the nation and kingdom we're talking about. God's nation and kingdom. And if we don't understand our history, we are like a people without a mind. Think about that. His other quote I found really helpful. Amnesia is a disease of the mind, and the Christian historian is needed to cure the church of its amnesia. He has a great English accent, by the way. You're going to love Dr. Needham. Find him and, and listen to a number of his lectures. So this morning, as we look at the first three centuries, we're going to start out with one event that absolutely changed the world. It was prophesied thousands of years before it actually occurred. And here we have, in the first century, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a monumental significant event in history that absolutely changed the world. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The light and the life was manifested to a very dark first century world. And after 400 years of silence, God then revealed himself in human flesh. So he was born and he accomplished all that the prophets and all that the prophecies had foretold. So here's where we want to go with the incarnation. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. Um, some people refer to that as the hypostatic union. Um, and I won't break the word up, but I'll just tell you, in essence, it means fully God and fully man. And believe me, many have talked about the complicatedness of that. It's understandable, and it's very clear in Scripture, and yet for the human mind, can't grasp it at all. And those of us who have the Spirit of God and have the Word of God, we grapple with this, but we look to Scripture as our guide. Fully God, fully man. That issue, by the way, will be a contentious point through all of church history, and particularly in the first three centuries. Who and what is the nature of God, and specifically of Christ Jesus? So, the incarnation, he was fully God and fully man. Let me just make a couple points about him being fully man and fully God. He was fully man. As a man, what would have Jesus, what would he have experienced in the first century? And so, did you know this? Let me ask you this. Show of hands here. Did Jesus have a beard or did he have no beard? Raise the hands. Did he have a beard or no beard? <laughs> Come on, I want class participation here. Bearded. Bearded, okay. All right, how about no beard? Come on, man, you guys are not being good. Okay, I see the bold ones, and I see no beard. Okay, beard, okay, all right, all right. And by the way, those kind of answers are going to be traditions, and they're, 
not going to be any certainty to it. I mean, nowhere in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, are you going to find Jesus with a beard or no beard. So these are historical things. There's great literature. Hopefully we'll be able to flesh out some of the great literature from the first, second, and third century that's still available to us, and people have read history. Okay, Did you, I'm going to answer that question in a minute, by the way. Um, so the population of Palestine, Jesus' earthly ministry was in that region of Palestine, in that area of Palestine. Palestine was probably about five or 600,000 people. Remember, he's fully man, and he's walking on this earth. He was born probably around A.D. 4, and he was crucified in A.D. 33. And so as a man, he's walking around Palestine and ministering Palestine his last three years. That was about five, 500,000 to 600,000 people. Um, Jerusalem in that day would be about 55,000 people. And I was trying to think of a city of 55,000 people. California population is just growing. Like I grew up in a, anyway, the, where I grew up, it was a small little, uh, a small little town. Benicia at one point was 25,000 people when we lived there. So it's like twice the population of Benicia. Okay, so population, children. According to archaeologists, you know, in Jesus' day, him walking as a man, Children played similar games. Guess what they would have played? Any guesses? Games like checkers. Hopscotch. Um, games like spinning the top. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Micah would have loved that little spinning the top thing. He, he would have fit right in there. I can't say that they played football or had teams like the Bulldogs. I can't really... I can't really... Uh, I didn't read anywhere about those things, but... Um, they had whistles, toy animals, um, and, so, and so forth. Now, if you were a tradesman, here's Jesus living in that day in the first century. Tradesmen, they would have been recognized by symbols they would have wore on their tunics. And, um, uh, in, and in fact, if you were a dyer, you would have had a colored pennant that you would have attached to your tunic. Also, if you were a carpenter, um, now, I had to be a little bit... Uh, it used my imagination on this. It said chips of wood behind the ear. And I was like, what in the world? You know, we just had a bunch of chips put on the side of our house. And anyway, it's like a pencil in the, in, in the back of your ear. So you could see that if, you're a, um, that if you were a tailor, that you would have put some type of a needle so people would have realized if you're walking around, oh, I need a tailor. I need a seamstress. I need... So those are things to be thinking about. Jesus in the first century, he was a man, fully man. Apparently, they had two meals a day. Bread was the main food. A, a lighter breakfast was often. Um, and then they would carry this light breakfast to work and eat it in the mid-morning. It was a lighter breakfast that they would... And then often, consisting of flatbread, um, olives, and cheese. Now, dinner was more substantial, consisting of vegetables like lentil or uh, lentil stew. Fruits, eggs, cheese. Fish was a common staple... But remember, if you're a Jew, you're careful about fish. Um, red meat was saved for very special occasions. Locusts, locusts was a delicacy. Reported, it was reported to taste like shrimp. And, uh, of course, it was commented that Jesus wouldn't have known that because it was a crustacean and unclean to the Jewish person. So a carpenter, Jesus being the carpenter, remember, he's fully man. As a carpenter, Jesus and his his father Joseph, earthly father Joseph, would have created mainly farm tools such as carts and plows and winnowing forks and yokes. 
also doors and frames. Um, they would have worked with posts and beams, and they would have created furniture and kitchen utensils. I thought that was interesting. So, was Jesus bearded, or was he not bearded? That's the question. Some of you were not bold and would not answer. Okay, here's what tradition has it. Um, men in the day, most urban Jews and Gentiles probably shaved, and the tradition is Jesus would have shaved. Traditional Jews bore beards in accordance with Levitical law. So I hope that didn't disappoint. But some say he had no beard. So he was fully man, and the significant point about the, point about the incarnation, he was fully God. He was God divine in the midst of humanity. The incarnation of the first century. He confirmed to the world who God is. God is who is eternal and he's self-existing. And yet he robed himself in flesh and he dwelt among men. If you were to look at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, here's what it says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah receiving a vision from God. You're going to receive a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now let me ask you this question. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Remember we're going to be celebrating Christmas. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And so here we have the testimony of John in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He talks about Jesus' self-existence. He talks about Jesus' eternality, his eternal character. And then he says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Let me rephrase that. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's important. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us is only what the heretics would have said because they would always try to separate Christ's nature from who he really is. So the word of God came and dwelt among us that we might see his glory, the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So the incarnation is an absolute monumental event that happened in the first century. And Jesus was born fully man and fully God. In fact, we hear, Peter's, we hear Philip's testimony. If you looked at John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, do you remember Philip? You remember? Do you remember what Philip says? Does anybody remember? I mean, I, I, I'm saying that to be interactive here. I don't mean to put you on the spot. But do you remember John chapter 14? Do you remember Philip's question? What was Philip's question? Show us... That was Thomas. We're getting there. No, that's good, though. I like the participation, Al, totally. And I, that's right. We have Philip and Thomas. And I confuse them, too. I just happen to have this responsibility to study this week. I got to refocus myself and go, okay, Philip is this and Thomas is that. Philip is the one that said, show us the Father. Show us the Father. He'd been walking with Jesus three years. Show us the Father. We want to know who God is. And what's his reply? In exasperation, Philip. Philip, 
If you see me, who do you see? The Father. That's right. And so Thomas, if you look at Thomas, and as far as the testimony of the incarnation, Thomas, the testimony of Thomas was he, he wasn't going to accept this resurrection talk. He wasn't going to accept the fact that Jesus was now alive unless he saw Jesus and was able to put his fingers in his hands and in his side. He wasn't going to do it. And interestingly enough, who comes to him but our Lord? Jesus comes to him. And um, what's Thomas's response is the point of his testimony of the incarnation. He falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. To the heretics, their minds are blowing up at this point. So, the testimony of the incarnation, the testimony of God dwelling in flesh. Jesus is fully man, and we see that from Philippians chapter 2. Paul does a whole discourse about this hypostatic union, this fully man and fully God. Paul does this, and he basically, in Philippians chapter 2, I won't take time, but you read it, but it's a, a wonderful portion of Scripture that gives you great clarity and great understanding about Jesus being fully God and fully man. So, the incarnation. The incarnation, the nature of Jesus Christ and the Trinity, they were fiercely defended by the disciples in the first three centuries. And they continue to be defended. But in those first three years, um, you're going to see do docicism and you're going to also see Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the primary. Docicism is coming out of Gnosticism. But really, what, what those teachings were, um, by the way, they, they all said that they were Christians, but you were a docetist Christian or you were a Gnostic Christian, and you could see the confusion here. Um, and so in the first, in the early church, they made great efforts um, to stand against heresy and to correct heresy. So let's move on to um, our second point. You'll notice Roman numeral number two. So the incarnation is a major event that happened in the first century. Secondly, the apostolic age. The first century men, known as the apostles of Jesus Christ, A.D. 33 to A.D. 100, now, it's interesting if you study these 12 men, and it gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Because you have 12 apostles, but then what about Paul? So I'm saying to you, there's 12 apostles. Judas defected. He was replaced by, um, I want to say his name right. Tell me out. Thank you. Thank you. Good, cl good class participation, especially when the instructor is saying, what's his name again? Matthias. Matthias was replaced. He replaced Judas. And, um, uh, but then the Apostle Paul. So you have 12 apostles plus one. Now let me ask you this. Can there be a current day apostle? I mean, aren't there apostles all over the place? You could actually Google it right now and find apostle so-and-so or apostle, apostle this or apostle that. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, there are apostles. You could go to the apostolic church, you know, and there you're going to find apostolic brother um, so-and-so. Um, capital A. These are, these are Jesus' disciples. These are, Jesus, these are people who saw Christ, who knew Christ, and Christ commissioned them for an apostolic ministry. It was an apostolic ministry of that time. It was the age of the apostles. 
and there are none who will replace them. And so the apostolic age, the first century men known as the apostles of Jesus Christ, you know, it's interesting to note here, the men who were called to what? Come and die. How would you like that calling? I mean, as Christians, that's what we're called to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great book. And it's full of those kind of concepts about men and those of us who are called as disciples come and die. But here's the apostles, those men who were first called. And you can, you can read the accounts of their calling in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 16. They were men called by Jesus to suffer, to die, and to provide an authoritative witness of the incarnation of Christ. And that's why in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's walking and he's pouring himself into them. And they're witnessing God fully man, and God fully, Jesus fully divine. And so, <clears throat> so if you notice, Jesus called his, his apostles to come and die. And in Matthew chapter 16, here's what Jesus said to them. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains this whole entire world and yet he forfeits his soul? So who, who were these men? And I won't take time just for our, our study today to name every single one of them, but they were men called to come and die. They were martyrs for Christ. And tradition has it, um, in fact, a, a reference here, uh, or a good resource rather, is... Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can read about all 12. You could read about the Apostle Paul and how they were, they were martyred. One I will mention to you, one I thought, one, one interesting, uh, one thing I learned, and I probably heard this, but I, it was, I was just refocused on this. The Apostle Peter, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, when he, um, um, he was taken to Rome, and um, I believe it was Rome, but they boiled him in oil. The Apostle John, they boiled him in oil. Now, if I got boiled in oil or you got boiled in oil, oil we're gone, right? Zip, we, it's zip, gone. He didn't, it didn't affect him. Now, I'm asking you this. If you're that cruel enough to boil somebody in oil and they don't get hurt or even touched, you tell me what your response is. What's your response to that guy? I mean, I, I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm looking at him differently. But they went ahead and put him to Patmos. And that's where J John remained the following portions of his life. And um, Dr. Needham talks about his, um, well, I'm trying to say it the way he does, and I, I can't do it. I don't have the ac English accent, and, uh, and he's far more scholarly. But it's interesting because an absurd or uh, obscene, lengthy life, John lived in an obscene lengthy life at 110 approximately. So I thought that was interesting about the apostles. The apostles were known as the foundation of the church. And the first century apostles are the foundation to the ministry of Jesus Christ and to his church. They are the foundation. The apostles are. So when you're talking with someone and they talk about um, being around um, uh, Apostle Cleary or um, Apostle Greg... You know, you, 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 know you, you need to understand that there is only um, 12 apostles plus one. And they are foundations of the church. 
Jesus wrote to Peter. He said, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, and he was referring to Peter, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A lot of debate about that verse. But basically, Peter was being commissioned by Christ to be a foundation for the church. Paul's teaching in Ephesians to the, Ephesians Christian, to the Ephesian Christians about the apostles being a foundation. In chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, that would be the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that would be the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the unity between Gentile and Jew. So that there's no longer... Strange, so that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so it's important to note here the role of the apostles. They were the foundation of the church. Jesus, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He invested himself in the apostles they are the apostles, and there was an apostolic age where God gave them a ministry in this world that cannot be represented, or cannot be replicated, rather. It cannot be replicated. And so that's why it's an important concept to understand there are no, no more original apostles. And so Peter's teaching to the beloved in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you look at verses 1 and 2, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring your minds by way of reminder. He wants them to keep holding on to the word of God. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, speaking about the Old Testament prophets, and the commands of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. An important concept. So they were foundational their testimony is foundational to the church. Remember, they are the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. That's that Ephesians 2.17 passage. Christ is the cornerstone. They're the foundation where the cornerstone is laid. So their testimony is foundational to the church. The apostles gave personal eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. You can look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 18, John chapter 1, 1 to 4. And verses 14, I think maybe I gave those on your outline. But let me just give John's account. John gives testimony to witnessing the word of life, Jesus Christ. So here's John, the apostle, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. These are men who witnessed, and they gave testimony, and they lived a life that represented Jesus Christ. And he's saying, John, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1, which was from the beginning. He knew the origin of Christ. Christ is self-existing. Christ is eternal. Which was from the beginning. We've heard. We've seen with our eyes. We've looked upon. And we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So the, apostle, the, the apostles are foundational. That's important for us to understand. So let me move on from the apostolic age. So we have the incarnation, the apostolic age. Let me move on now to our section number three, the early church, 
the early church age of the second century. So the early church age of the second century, we have the first century, and then we have this crossover into the second century. And here's this one point that I'd like to communicate, and I hope you remember this one point. Going from the incarnation to the apostolic age, crossing over into the early church period, the early church period, here's the deal. It was seamless in terms of discipleship. And what I'm pointing out here is the apostles that were told in Matthew 28 to go into all the nations, uh, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they did that. And the point with the second century is, as the apostles are being martyred and dying, in going into the second century, there are disciples of the apostles that make it a seamless transition and continue to speak the verbal word of God that God has been writing through the Apostle Paul. Writings of, of God started, the, the writings of Scripture started about 40 A.D. and they continued through about uh, 110 A.D. with the Apostle John or maybe 100 A.D. But you have the writings of Scripture. But my point is, when you have the early church age, how, how did they carry things on? It's because those apostles were investing themselves in disciples. And so I just want to mention two of those. The early church age, we are transitioning from the, early church, from, the, uh, from the age of the apostles to glance at the age of the early church. And one notice a point, uh, point to consider is that seamless transition between the apostles and the early disciples of the second century. So uh, Ignatius of Antioch, you're going to hear an Ignatius of Lyon, but I'm talking right now about Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch, he's one of those that helped with this seam that God used to have this seamless transition. Um, Ignatius, um, oh, let me just mention a couple just background thoughts. The second century men who were disciples of the apostles, this is by no means an exhaustive list of the disciples of the apostles. The apostles understood Jesus' command to go, Matthew 28, 19, into all the worlds and have discipleship, multiplying was and is part of who we are. So Ignatius of Antioch, um, you can look at and see him in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, apparently was martyred in A.D. 116. Also called Ignatius, he was called Theophorus, which means in Greek, the, the God-bearer. He was said to be the successor of Peter because Peter was the bishop of Antioch and later... Ignatius became the bishop of Antioch. Um, he was, this, he was uh, a successor. Um, uh, he was a disciple of John. And he became a bishop 30 years before John's death. And so he knew John. And he knew Peter. And um, what was his contribution? Ignatius was fierce against heresy. When it came to the nature of Jesus Christ, Ignatius was fierce to defend Christ's nature and who Christ was, fully God and fully man. So according to Webster's Dictionary, um, heresy is basically, it's any belief or practice that explicitly undermines the gospel and has been determined to be heresy by a recognized church or ecclesial authority. I mean, one example of this, as far as heresy goes, you can see in Galatians chapter 2, this issue of legalism comes up 
in the early church. Legalism in Galatians 2. Legalism is a big issue in the church. And so what they did was, Paul submitted to the, to the apostolic council. And Paul and Peter then go back to, go back to um, Jerusalem to hammer out this issue of, um, of legalism. And you can see that in Acts chapter 15, that this issue gets hammered out in Acts chapter 15. And then they know how to continue on then of how to respond to legalism. Isn't that interesting? So heresy is that um, is, is any belief or practice that explicitly undermines the gospel. And, and I know um, I, I'm, I'm going to broaden Easton's dictionary because I read numerous parts of dictionaries about this. But not only the gospel, but God's word. And um, okay, so heresy. So he understood Paul, the apostle Paul's warning. And I'm talking about Ignatius. Ignatius of Antioch understood Paul's warning. Here's Paul's warning in Romans 16, verse 17. You know, if you think about Romans, it's all doctrine. If you look at the book of Romans, 16 chapters, <clears throat> almost all doctrine, but as Paul's concluding his message in Romans 16, you might find this interesting. He starts to say, greet this person. In fact, in 13 verses, he says, greet this person 17 times. Every time he says, greet this person, he adds a great characteristic of that person because they died for the faith or they work for the faith or they're partners with us in the faith. And he's always including this unity of doctrine. And then in verse 17, he says, I appeal to you. And I'm sure Ignatius of Antioch understood this, Romans 16, 17, very clearly. I appeal to you, Paul says to the brothers, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. So Ignatius warned the church about heretical error. And Ignatius died. Um, interesting, the emperor Trojan confronts him. Ignati Ignatius won't back down for his faith in Christ. He gets marched, he gets marched to the Colosseums in Rome and Ignatius there is thrown and, and, uh, and torn apart by the wild beasts. Ignatius died as a martyr of Christ. Polycarp. Again, my point for mentioning Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp is to help us to see from the apostles as we move into the early church age, there is this seamless transition from the voices, from the voices of the apostles to these men. And as they're living in the second century, they're hearing and living and seeing. In fact, Polycarp, a disciple of John, he gave himself personally, um, he, gave, he gave personal first century apostolic teaching to the second century. And he's a testimony about, um, <clears throat> here's a, a testimony about Polycarp. So interesting, Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon. Now I'm mentioning a different Irenaeus, switching gears on you. Irenaeus, we just talked about, Irenaeus of Antioch. This is Irenaeus of Lyon. He came after. He was born around 130. But it's important because we still have Irenaeus of Lyon's writings. I find that fascinating. He did a five-volume work on heresy. We still have it available. And it gives great insight about what heresy is, what Gnosticism is. So you have the fragments from the lost writing. And here's what, here's what Irenaeus says about Polycarp. I can even describe the place where the blessed Polycarp used to sit and converse, his general way of life and his personal appearance, 
even the lectures he delivered to the people, I remember how he would speak of his familiar interchange with John and with the rest of those whom had seen the Lord, how he would call their words to remembrance. Anything he had heard from, the, from them concerning the Lord with, with both regard to his miracles and his teachings, what Polycarp received from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, he would recount in harmony with the scriptures. I just want to give you a little flavor on, on Polycarp. So, he was not fond of Gnosticism. In Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon, in his book, um, he recounts, <clears throat> he says, this is a short story that I remember of Irenaeus. It's a very short one. He says, he met Marcion, a unique and popular Gnostic of the day. And Marcion, as he was walking by Polycarp, he asked him, do you know who I am? And Polycarp in a very calm reply said, I know you. You're the firstborn of Satan. So the observer of this interchange pointed out, it always seems unusual to me that Irenaeus, from whom we now have the most about the man of God and the martyr, he wrote such a huge volume of Gnosticism and against heresy. Irenaeus, he makes it really clear that both Polycarp and John were not very fond. They were very short with the heretic. So, he died as a martyr as well. Ignatius was marched into the Colosseum. He had a chance to recant. He had a chance to deny Christ. He refused it. On his way in there, tradition has it, he heard a voice saying, Polycarp, play the man. No one knows where the voice came from. Play the man. And maybe you'll hear that in as you read more about Polycarp. At 86 years old, when he was asked to renounce Christ, 86 years old, here's what Polycarp said. He declared, Christ has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Lord and King when he has done me no wrong for these 86 years? So he was put to death, being bound and being burned at the stake, and then stabbed when the fire failed to consume his body. So let's transition to our fourth, our fourth category. Let's transition into the heresy of the first century. Uh, let, let's transition into heresy. Now, when we talk about heresy, I mentioned the definition before. And when we talk about heresy, I'm going to give you some resources. That's the way I'm going to deal with this, because you can see time is, time is evaporating for me. Heresy, that belief or the practice that explicitly undermines the gospel of the word of God, that heresy. So, <clears throat> in the first three centuries, you'll see that Gnosticism was the primary one. And from Gnosticism, Docetism comes. And I'm going to mention Gnosticism in a moment here. But it's basically an attack on Jesus' character. I mean, essentially, as they're trying to dismantle, they're trying to figure out, but in their own humanity and in their own um, flesh, they can't reason with God. They can't think about God. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. And so they're trying to come up with ideas of how to satisfy who this Jesus really is. He certainly couldn't be deity. And so two major heresies that existed was Gnosticism and Arianism. And in fact, Arianism is where the Jehovah's Witnesses come. And um, this certainly is where the Spirit, they, they dismantled the whole trinity 
The Spirit is an it. It's a force. And we see this ringing out through the doctrine of uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. But the two major heresies, I'm just going to mention one, but let me give you a couple resources. And I'm going to throw these out, and then you, you come to me if you need any, any clarity on this. But Irenaeus of Lyon, he did, in, in, it was published in 180 AD, his five-volume work entitled Against Heresy. Also, in the city of Egypt, there was a city called Nay Hamardi. Now, it's interesting because in 1945, in Nay Hamardi, the city, there were documents found in these clay pots, much like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were found in Hamardi, in Nay Hamardi, and therefore called the Nay Hamardi manuscripts, but they're confirming the Gnostic teachings. And I'm going to just point out the Gnostic teachings really quickly. And I got this from Dr. Nicholas Needham. Um, and uh, one, one last um, resource I want to mention to you. By the way, the Nehemarty manuscripts, you can Google that and actually find the Nehemarty manuscripts. I mean, we live in a fascinating era. And also um, the five-volume work of, uh, of Irenaeus. But the Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, this was, uh, the, the Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, an old heresy for the New Age by Peter Jones. And he's commenting on Gnosticism, old and new. Um, he's a professor, Dr. Jones is a professor from um, Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California. Uh, he wrote this book in 1992, The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back. But let me give you these six core beliefs very quickly. Six core beliefs of Gnosticism. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you hear this word about heresy and Gnosticism, it's like, how do you even think about it? And, and how, how, do you, how do you make it practical? Dr. Nicholas Needham did a great lecture on this, and these are basically six core beliefs that he's pointing out. Number one, the divine nature of the human soul. Let me repeat that. The human soul is divine. Um, and that is what they taught back in the first three centuries under Gnosticism. You are a god. In fact, Shirley MacLaine, and I don't know if you know that name, but she was an actress, and um, I mean, she and many others, uh, Shirley MacLaine, Kenneth Copeland, who happens to be under the umbrella of Christianity, or, and then John Lennon. Of course, we all know the Beatles and John Lennon. You are a divine nature from within. This goes from Gnosticism back then, and we see it translated in, in society now. But if you're looking, Shirley MacLaine says, if you see me, you see God. That's what Shirley MacLaine says. The second point of interest is the experience is the gateway to truth. Experience is the gateway to truth. Facts, logic, faith, science, rationalism, those are thrown out. And it's, it, it is the priority to get into an emotional, um, an emotional state. The third thing is, claims to receive guidance from spirit guides. And so Paul in his third heaven, it was referred to back in Gnosticism, Paul is seeing something back there in the third heaven. It's not really clear, but that's the point with Gnosticism. Nothing really is. Um, Paul was enlightened. And also, in our current day, there's a lady I found interesting, Jane Roberts, in the 1960s. She had a spirit guide named as Seth. <laughs> I found really interesting. I was going to talk to our Seth about that. Um, just if he knew that little fact right there. But in the 1960s, you could actually Google, Google Jane Roberts 
But their claims to be this guidance from the, uh, their, their claims to be receive guidance from spirit guides. The fourth thing, hatred of the Old Testament. Oh, hatred of the Old Testament. Hatred of the New Testament as well, but the first three chapters of the Old Testament, their minds were blowing up. And especially the hatred, they hated and they vilified because it pronounced, it was predominant about the male gender. They claim that Adam and Eve are the heroes of Genesis 1 to 3, and Yahweh is the villain. And one day, Sophia, she's a goddess, will come and throw Yahweh into hell. I mean, this is warped stuff. But their hatred of the Old Testament. And I specifically want to point out, because of the male emphasis there, Point number five, worship of goddess. Worship of females over males. The goddess Sophia is a big point there. She will one day set the captives free. And she does that by, again, throwing Yahweh into hell and freeing the world of male chauvinist attitudes. The fifth thing, sexuality. This is Gnosticism and the six core beliefs of it. There is a rejection of complementarianism. And that basically is this. God has created male. He's created female. And they are different and yet equal. Different and yet completely equal as they stand before God. There is a rejection um, of the biblical view held by Christianity and Judaism that men and women are different. No kidding. If you listen to this stuff, the Gnostics' view and their goal are to not have an identity. Let me repeat that. They say don't have an identity. Where, where is this going? Can we see this flushed out in our everyday life? That was their goal, not to have an identity with gender. Gender should be neutral. There is a rejection of male and female identity. That was Gnostics in the first and second, third century. And as you see it flush out in our 21st century, it's quite amazing. Shirley MacLaine has a testimony and goes at great lengths about talking about seeing her male side and is rather fascinated about it. And so, Gnosticism under the heresy in the first three centuries. In the fourth century, you're going to see Arminian, Arminianism take over and starts to be the subject there. Well, we're out of time. I just want to mention persecution in the early church I mean, this could go on and on and on. I mean, you understand, I'm just like a little thumbnail scratch here. Um, persecution in the early church. Christianity was illegal until approximately 313 to 324 under Emperor Constantine. He legalized it. Fox Book of Martyrs is a great resource when you look at persecution in the early church. I just, in closing, want to mention, I want to mention um, Perpetua. She's a 21-year-old 20, um, female, came from a wealthy family. This is in conclusion, by the way. Um, came from a wealthy family. She had a small child, a, a baby boy. And Perpetua, as far as um, the Christian faith goes, she not only was a confessor of the Christian faith, everybody was a confessor. If you're a Christian, you confess Christ. Not everybody was a sufferer. Some did. And some of us here will be sufferers. And then a third level under persecution of the church, the martyr. And those are, that is for the person who is called on by God to not give up Christ, but to die for him. 
The confessor, the sufferer, and the martyr is a big deal. And Perpetua was called not only to be a confessor, not only to be a sufferer, but she was put in jail. And as she was in jail, her father came to visit her. She comes from a wealthy home. This was, she lived in Carthage, or Carthage in Africa. And while still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me, give it up. Give up. Father, I said to him, do you see this pitcher or this vase, this water vase or this water pitcher? He said, yes. She said, could it be anything else than what it is? And he said, no, it can't. And she said, well, I too cannot be anything other than what I am. I'm a Christian. And at that, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards me as though he would pluck my eyes out. But then he left and he departed. Perpetua was killed with her friend, thrown in the Colosseums, and they first had a a, a, a rabid bull or a rabid heifer going at them. And the people in the Colosseum said, no, no, no. And so then in turn, they threw Perpetua and her friend out to the gladiators where they were sorted to death for the name of Christ. So I'm over time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I can't ask any questions. But uh, thank you for being here this morning. And I, I hope this was edifying. The early church history, the first three centuries. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you as we look back. We don't want to be people with amnesia. We don't want to be people um, with shallow minds. We want to be deep thinkers of understanding how you have worked through history, through people. And so help us with this, Lord. Encourage, encourage us as your body to be strong, that we might give Christ all the glory and exalt him in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for being here.